Have you ever talked to someone or heard them talk about an experience they had? And as they talked, you realize that they had no idea what they were doing when they began this experience. Here are some actual comments by people who didn't seem to understand what was involved in going on a wilderness trail. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid areas of these pests. Please pave the trails. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and stole a jar of pickles. Is there any way I can be reimbursed? Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Too many rocks in the mountains. Now these comments and complaints indicate the people who made them had no idea what a wilderness trail was before they started going on the trail. They were looking for something convenient and comfortable and not a real wilderness experience. I think there's often a similar misunderstanding about what it means to follow Jesus. Many claim to follow Jesus and yet have no real understanding about what it means to be His disciple. They want to follow Him on their terms and not His. Today we're going to start a lengthy series called The Way of Jesus. And throughout this series we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about what it meant to follow Him. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. It's page 735 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... We're going to stop there today. The title, the message this morning is The Way of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you for this time that we have to gather. We thank you for your word, Lord, that is such a sure guide for our lives. We thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. We thank you for your spirit, Father, that lives within us and leads us in the way of righteousness. We thank you. Lord, for the privilege of getting to be called by your name, getting to be your adopted sons and daughters. Lord, as we gather here today, we have a desire to learn what it means to follow Jesus. Father, we don't want to be people who think it means one thing when it means something else. We don't want to be surprised by the difficulty of the trail. We don't want to be surprised, Lord, by the the hardships that may come as we follow Jesus. We want to know what it means to follow Him and we want to give our lives to doing His will. So today as we have gathered here, send Your Holy Spirit to help us to be focused on You and what You have for us today. Speak to us in this time. Draw us closer to You. Lord, if there's anything in our lives that's not as it ought to be, convict us. Begin the conviction even now. Lord, don't let a one of us leave here today without knowing that, Lord, we have been born again and that we are devoted to following Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use me, God, to accomplish your will among your people today. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way. Let your will be done in all of our hearts and all of our lives. God, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. 
Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. It starts here in verse 1 as he walks up on a mountain and he sits down and begins to teach his disciples. Now, sitting down was a common and authoritative posture for rabbis of Jesus' day. By doing this, he was demonstrating to them that what he was about to say was very important. Now, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus saw the multitudes. He went up on the mountain, but it was his disciples that came to him. Right, The primary audience for the Sermon on the Mount are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a crowd that heard all that he had to say. They were amazed at the end that he taught with authority, not as a scribe or a Pharisee. But the multitudes were not the primary audience. They just got to overhear what Jesus had to say to his disciples. Primarily, Jesus was teaching those who had already committed their lives to Him. And what He was teaching them was what it meant to follow Him. What it meant to be His disciple. And this is important. Right? Because what it teaches is that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount to a specific audience for a specific reason. Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount to those who had already committed their lives to following Him. That's the audience. The reason is that they would know what it means To be a follower of Jesus Christ. That they would not be surprised by anything that comes up. That they would not think it was going to necessarily be easy or just a a life filled with peace and strength and, and all of this kind of stuff. But they would know what was demanded of them, what was required of them, and what would come as they began to follow Him. The key idea for the message today and for really this entire series... It is that all believers can and should live the way of Jesus. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is the way of Jesus. And every believer, all believers, can and should live the way of Jesus. Now let me take just a minute and explain that, that key thought. Because it will be, again, it's the key thought for the entire series. Not just for today. But all believers... This means that if you're here today and you claim to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the Sermon on the Mount is for you. And this is true regardless of how long you've been saved. But at the end of the service today, I'm going to call on you, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, to believe on Him for your salvation. If you make that decision this morning, then the Sermon on the Mount immediately becomes your marching orders. This is the way you are to live as a newborn disciple, believer in Jesus Christ. At the same time, if you have been a believer in Jesus Christ for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the Sermon on the Mount still contains your marching orders. This is the way we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ. The teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not what we might call next level teaching. This is basic introductory, 101, believing in Jesus, this is how you live stuff. This is the way every Christian is supposed to live, regardless of how long they've been a Christian or anything else. Can, and we'll talk about the reality in the message today, that what we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount, it's hard to live out, it just is. However, difficult to live out doesn't mean impossible to live out. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been born again. And the Spirit of God lives within you. 
Both of those guarantee that you can do anything Jesus wants you to do. Being born again changes your thought patterns. It changes your desires. It changes your priorities. It changes our wills. And the Spirit of God living within us empowers us to do the things that God, or in this case Jesus, would have us to do. For the believer in Jesus Christ, even though this is difficult, it is all doable. A failure for us to live out the Sermon on the Mount is not a matter of I cannot. It is always a matter of I will not. And then should. Since the way of Jesus is for all believers and since all believers can live the way of Jesus, then we all should live this way. Each and every one of us in here today, if we would say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, we should put forth all the effort necessary to live out the Sermon on the Mount, to live in all of the ways that Jesus described, to have the attitudes He says we ought to have, to have the values He teaches that we ought to have, to take the actions He says we ought to take, to react the way that He says we ought to react. Everything in here is something that we should be doing our dead level best to live out. For us to know that the Sermon on the Mount is for us as believers and then not to do it, it is nothing short of disobedience to Christ and the way of life He intends for us to live. Now with all that being said, let me show you four facts about the way of Jesus. And what we're going to do today, we're going to be in a long study of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be here until March of next year. And what we're going to do today is kind of a survey of the Sermon on the Mount to introduce the way of Jesus to us, to get us to wrap our minds around all that we're going to see. So four facts about the way of Jesus. Number one is that the way of Jesus is unnatural. I, I chose that intentionally. I was going to say countercultural, but that's kind of a hip phrase that is overused anymore. But I think unnatural is a better wording. And I think unnatural is better because the idea that I'm going for that we're going to see is that the things that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, no one naturally gravitates towards doing them. But without putting forth any effort, without being born again, without being filled with the Holy Spirit, no one just naturally gravitates towards living in the way that Jesus talks about. It is unnatural to our Normal human nature. Now, for example, look at chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, blessed are those who mourn. Who thinks of mourning as being the path of blessing? Probably no one. And yet, here it is. This is what Jesus said. Not only that, but when we get to, to, verse, five, to verse 4 and we see what it is to mourn, what we're mourning over, we're going to see even that it's even more unnatural because the mourning that Jesus is talking about here is first and foremost that we mourn over our sin. Right? The, the mourning that brings the blessing is when we look at our sin and the stuff that we have done and it breaks our hearts. But it's not just mourning over our sin. It's mourning over the sin of others. When we see that other people are living in rebellion against God, that they are sinning against Him, our hearts ache. 
But not even just that. But it's just the general brokenness of the world. But picture Jesus going into Jerusalem just before He's going to be crucified. What does He do as He sits and He looks over it? He weeps at the lostness of the city that had rejected Him. He's not weeping that they're going to crucify Him. He's weeping because they have missed out on all that He had for them. That's the attitude here. Now, who among us naturally mourns our sin? Who among us naturally mourns the sin of others? Who among us naturally mourns just the general brokenness of the world that we live in? This mindset, living it out, it's unnatural. But look at chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, blessed for being persecuted. Who thinks that enduring suffering and persecution is the path to being blessed? And yet, here it is. Now, typically, our, our mindset is to do everything that we can to avoid suffering and hardship of any kind. And we don't think of it as being blessed. We don't think like the disciples did in the book of Acts, that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And yet here it is. It's not a natural mindset to rejoice and be exceedingly glad when people revile you for Jesus' sake. It's unnatural. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, the main point of what Jesus is saying here is not to make a show of doing a charitable deed. But look especially at verse 3. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The, the idea is that it's a secret. Right? That when we give to a person or we give to a group or something like that, we don't make a point to make sure others know. Right? Now, this doesn't mean if someone sees or if someone knows it's wrong. That's not the case. The point is don't post about it on social media. Don't hold a press conference to talk about how much money you're giving to a particular cause. Rather than making a show of our charitable giving, we are to, to do it in secret, knowing that God sees, God cares, and that God will reward us if we deserve it. That's very different from the world around us, isn't it? I mean, the world around us is constantly talking about all the good that they're doing, the giving that they make. Right, if someone, particularly you see it on with the, fam the rich and the famous people, if they're going to give to a cause to Red Cross during a time of calamity, they don't just secretly give, do they? 
They kind of make a show of it. They hold a press conference. We're going to give this amount of money. So all the people, what do they say? Ooh. Ah. But it's not just famous people that do it. Now, we may not be able to, if we were to call a press conference, probably nobody would come. But we can post about it on social media, can't we? I gave this amount. I did this. I helped that person. Boy, it feels good to do something like that for someone else. And that's the same principle. It's the same sort of thing. But see, making a show of any sort of charitable giving, that's natural. I mean, that is the the natural human mindset is to just make sure others see so that others can ooh and awe and say how great we are. But not the follower of Jesus Christ. The way of Jesus is to do it secretly. Trusting that God will see what we do in secretly. And if we deserve a reward, God will make sure we get it. If we deserve honor, God will make sure that we get it. Doing charitable acts in secret and trusting God to bless us, it is unnatural. And then finally, look at verse 19 and 20 of chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6. 19 and 20 of Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now this is as unnatural as anything in the Sermon on the Mount. Human nature is to store up treasures on earth. And that's not just for people who don't believe in God. Even people who believe in eternity typically focus more on the treasures they can see than on the treasures they cannot see. And yet Jesus says we are to do exactly the opposite. Our treasures, the things that we are storing up, it's not to be for the here and the now. It's not to be the toys and the money And all of that. Instead we store up treasures in heaven. Things that we can't see. And we almost pay very little attention as the the idea to the stuff that we can see. Because in the big scheme of things we know that what we can't see is far more important and more valuable than what we can see. Now that's not natural. That is a very unnatural Way to live. And everything in the Sermon on the Mount is that way. No one naturally or accidentally drifts into the way of Jesus. It is a way of life that must be chosen. And while the way of life, the way of Jesus is unnatural, it is still the way every believer can and should live. Secondly, the way of Jesus is hard. Anytime I hear people say being a Christian or living the Christian life is easy, I always wonder if they've actually ever read the Bible. I mean, there is nothing about what Jesus describes as what it means to follow Him that carries with it the idea of being easy. The Sermon on the Mount is no different. Look at verse chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now the point Jesus is making here isn't that we're literally to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands. Rather the point is that we're to remove anything from our lives that leads us to sin. And we're to do it even though it's painful. We're to do it even though it's dear to us. Right? Because he specifically mentioned your right eye. Right? And, and in Bible times, the right eye was considered the most important eye. So no matter how priceless or how precious something is or someone is, if it leads you to sin, the follower of Jesus is to remove it from their life. And they're to do it regardless of what it is. So according to Jesus, if I have a relationship with someone that leads me to sin, I'm to end that relationship. Now, we mustn't think of this merely in the realm of sexual sin. Now, true, it's meant here. I mean, that's the primary application to it because it comes on the heels of the idea of adultery. But that's not the only application to this. What if I have a friend that when we get together, all we do is gossip? Well, is gossip a sin? Yes. So what am I supposed to do when I get with that person? I'm not supposed to get with them. I'm supposed to cut it off. What if when I get with a person, all we do is just chew people up and spit them out, be critical and hateful about them? What am I to do? I'm to cut it off. And there is virtually no end to the way this could be lived out. No matter what it is, if this something leads me to sin, the follower of Jesus Christ is to cut it off and throw it away because Jesus says it is better to go through life without that person, that relationship, that activity, that action, that thing, and then end up in hell. Far better to go without them, go without them and end up in heaven than to keep them in our life and end up in hell. That's the way of Jesus. And it is hard to live that out. Look at chapter 5, verses 38 through 44. This is maybe the hardest part of the whole sermon to me. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I get that. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Give to him, who, whoever compels you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to him who asks, and from, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Well, that's a hard teaching. The slap that he talks about, if they slap you, turn the other cheek. Now, the slap wasn't so much a physical assault in Jesus' day as it was an insult, right? It's not necessarily talking about just a full throat punch to take you down. More, it was a slap like that. 
and what they did was, it was a way to show that you were inferior. Right? And it was apparently fairly common. Those who were higher class, those who were more important, if they felt an, an inferior person was getting out of their category, you know, stepping up and putting on airs, they would slap them to remind them that they were inferior to them. Now, the closest parallel to our day might be just for somebody to, to spit in your face. I mean, there's just not a whole lot that's more demeaning and just says you don't matter than someone to just spit in your face. Now, let me ask you, what is your what would be your natural response if someone just walked up to you in Walmart and spit in your face? Jesus says that's not the right answer. Not for those who follow Him. It's believers, disciples of Jesus Christ. He eliminates retribution and revenge altogether. And He says rather than seeking revenge and retribution, we're to seek redemption and reconciliation for those people. Right? Verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I mean, that makes really good sense to me. Love those who love you. Hate those who hate you. I get that. That makes perfect sense. Right? But Jesus said it's not good enough for those who are His disciples. Instead, we're to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use us. I mean, that makes... Honestly, that makes no sense to me. It's certainly not natural. It goes against all my fleshly desires and all my fleshly thinking. Why on earth... Would we do something like that? Well, that's for a later message, but it is just for now what we're supposed to do. How, how difficult is that teaching? The way of Jesus is hard, but it's still the way we're supposed to live. Look at chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but... If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's rough. Jesus says that we are always to forgive those who wrong us. Now, our natural inclination is to say, but, but what about? But no matter how we finish that sentence, the answer is we are to forgive. And that's hard. I mean, at least it is for me. Maybe I'm projecting... You people are far more generous and merciful than I am. But forgiveness is not something that comes natural to me. Um, when I was a kid, I thought about this, I was preparing the message. When I was, a, I was in kindergarten, climbed up the top of the slide, you know those slides that had the hump and you all stopped and you kind of all went down together. I got to the top and somebody pushed me off the top of the slide and I landed face first and scuffed my face and my arms all up. For two weeks, I acted like I didn't care until that person felt comfortable enough to get to the top of the slide. And then I ran over there, pushed two people out of the way, ran to the top and pushed them off. I waited two weeks to get even. Forgive. The teacher made them ask to tell me they were sorry. Oh, I forgive you. Yeah, not even close did I forgive them. I think if they were on a slide today, I'd have a hard time not pushing them off the top right now. But Jesus says that's not the way. That any of us are supposed to live. He says we're not supposed to get even. We're not supposed to hold a grudge. We're supposed to forgive. And, and the deeper the grievance against us. 
the harder this is to live out. And yet, it is still the way of Jesus that you and I are meant to live out. Look at verse 16 through 18. Last one on this. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, fasting isn't something we talk much about in our day, and it's not something that's done much in our day. And yet, the words of Jesus here in other places, it showed that it was something He expected that His disciples would do. But really, fasting and, and, and the not fasting... It's more than the not eating food. I mean, that's what a fast is. A fast is doing without something physical for the sake, for spiritual reasons, right? We do without so that we can overcome a sin. We do without so that we can help someone be saved. We do without for spiritual reasons. But the real issue, the issue with fasting overall is just self-denial, isn't it? I mean, because none of us, if we were to miss a, a meal, we're not on the verge of dying if we miss lunch and don't eat till dark, are we? If we fast from sun up to sundown, we're, we're not probably going to pass out. I mean, unless you have a medical condition. I'm just talking normal, healthy. That's not the issue. What is the issue? Denying myself something I want. I mean, that's the, that's the big issue with, with fasting. It is self-denial. And we're just not good at self-denial. We're a whole lot better at self-denial indulgence and yet the way of Jesus it is a way of self-denial he did say that we must deny ourselves to take up our crosses and and follow him fasting isn't the big issue we'll talk about fasting in a few months but food isn't the big deal the self-denial now that that's the real issue behind fasting our unwillingness our inability to deny ourselves anything that we want it's hard. Self-denial is hard. And yet self-denial is a part of the way of Jesus that we're supposed to live out. Most of what we're going to talk about in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be hard. I mean, there's just no getting around it. Some's going to be harder than others. And depending on how we're naturally wired, some things that, that I may think are hard, you may think are easy. Some things that you may think are easy, or you may think are hard, I, I may think is easy. Just some of it is going to vary on that. But all of us, at times, we're going to find that this stuff's hard to live out. And yet, no matter how hard it is to live out, we're still to live it out. This is what we're meant to do. So the way of Jesus is unnatural. The way of Jesus is hard. Thirdly, the way of Jesus is the best way. And now what I've talked about so far can make it seem like this is the most miserable way of life Imaginable, but nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that the way of Jesus, it is the most fulfilling. It is the best way we could possibly live. Right, let me give you some examples. Look at uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. And we're just going to read part of it. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are. Verse 4, blessed are. Verse 5, blessed are. Verse 6, blessed are. 7, blessed are. 8, blessed are. 
9, blessed are. 10, blessed are. 11, blessed are. There's a theme there. Blessed. But what does it mean to be blessed exactly? The word for blessed could legitimately be translated as happy, but it really seems to be the wrong sense in this particular context. The word that's translated as blessed when used in conjunction with humans, it it originally suggested the kind of bliss thought to be associated with someone who had been removed from the cares of life. One of my commentaries said that the word blessed here, it meant having spiritual joy, satisfaction, that lasts regardless of conditions or circumstances, that carries one through pain, sorrow, loss, and grief. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean that's something I want in my life, right? I want spiritual joy and satisfaction that lasts regardless of the circumstances. I want a joy and a satisfaction that will carry me through pain, loss, sorrow, and grief. And that is what is offered to us, but only in the way of Jesus. Right? These promises, this blessing, it's not for just anyone with any attitude that lives and acts however they want to. It is for those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are uh, peacemakers, and those who are willing to be persecuted. For righteousness sake. If we embrace those attitudes. We will find spiritual joy and satisfaction. That lasts regardless of the circumstances of our life. That carries us through pain, loss, grief and sorrow. Yes, the way of Jesus. It is unnatural. But the payoff is worth it. The blessings are worth it. This I mean, our world is filled with people that want what this blessing represents. And it is available to every believer in Jesus who will live out the way of Jesus. This is the best way of life there could possibly be. Look at chapter 6 and verse 4. That your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself Reward you. Verse 6. But when you pray, go to your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who, who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Verse 18. So that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But when your Father who is in the secret place. and your, But to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Listen, everything we do in secret, God sees. God sees the charitable acts we don't promote and make a show of. God sees the times we pray. God sees when we fast. God sees when we make His kingdom and His righteousness our priority in life. And God not only sees, but the promise is that God rewards Right, that, that the God who sees in secret, He will reward us openly. Right? And so He paints a contrast. We can do it before men, and they will say, Ooh, ah, and there's our reward. Or we can have a reward that comes from God Himself. Now, 
Clearly, the point is what comes from God is vastly superior to oohs and ahs of our peers. And then, when we seek the kingdom of God first, all these things are added to us. But the way of Jesus is not the way of misery. It's not the way of no joy, no peace, a a miserable monastic life. No, no, the way of Jesus It is a way of blessing. It is a way of, I'm not going to, I hate to say abundance because that sounds bad, but I don't know any other way to say it. Spiritual abundance for sure. I mean, who doesn't want God to bless them openly and do all of these things in secret? Who doesn't want God to add all these things to our lives? And seek first the kingdom of God. Yes, it's hard. And it's unnatural. That doesn't change the fact that it is absolutely the best way to live. And then finally, look at Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it fell, for great was its fall. Now, I love this particular passage. I'm excited about getting to preach it in several months. But notice some things that Jesus tells us. First, the rains, the floods, and the winds... They beat on both houses. right? I mean, there's just, there's just no way to escape those things in life. Yet one house stands and the one house falls and the one that falls, it's great was its fall. I think the picture is that it's completely destroyed. Right? It's not a minor damage where some shingles blew off, but the house was, was leveled. And what made the difference? How, where it was built. One was built on a rock. The other was built on the sand. The one that was built on the rock had a solid foundation, so it withstood the rains, the floods, and the winds. The one that was built on the sand did not have a firm enough foundation, so the rains, floods, and winds destroyed it. Now, the house represents our lives and the foundations that we can build on. We can build on the rock, which is the way of Jesus, or we can build on the sand, which is the way of the world. Building our lives on His Word, it means to... To take and to do them, he says in verse 24. He who hears these things of mine and and does them. So when I hear or read what Jesus has said and I put it into practice, I'm building my life on a firm foundation. And my life will be able to stand, to withstand the rains, the floods, and the winds. But when I hear the sayings of mine, and that's kind of the point. The point isn't, right? Look at verse 26. Who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. This isn't a picture of one person was raised and, and he could hear the Bible all the time. And the other person never heard what Jesus said. Nope. It's two people. It's all of us in here today. Some are going to hear it and do it. Some are going to hear it and not do it. Right? Both heard the differences in how they responded to it. Those who hear and don't do. Go their own way rather than the way of Jesus. They build their life on sand. 
And when the rains, the winds, and the floods come, it will bring crashing and destruction into their lives. Do we want... I mean, now, the storms come to both. Now, there's just no way to live this life without storms coming into our lives. It's just not. How are we going to be able to withstand when they come? When they come. By having built our lives properly in advance. I mean, once the rains, the floods and the winds are coming, it's, it's too late to run out and try to change your foundation. It's too late to go out and try to stiffen it up. You've got to do it before those things come. And if we want to have a life that's built to last, we can. We can have marriages that are built to last. We can have relationships that are built to last. We have a spiritual life that's built to last. And it's found in hearing and obeying Jesus' words, walking in the way of Jesus. And that promise, it is only associated with those who walk in the way of Jesus. I can't hear His words and do my own thing and expect that my life is going to be built on the right foundation. The way of Jesus, it is the best way of life. There is no better way to live than following Jesus. Again, is it hard? For sure. We're going to have to do things that don't make sense, that seem unnatural? Absolutely. But in the end, It will always be worth it. We never choose the way of Jesus and regret those decisions. It is always the best way of life. That's one reason Jesus calls us to this way and empowers us to be able to live it out. But finally, the way of Jesus is unnatural. It's hard. It's the best way. The way of Jesus demands a decision. Notice how the sermon ends. The rains ascended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Thus ends the saying of Jesus. I mean, that's it. He just finishes his sermon and stops. Having laid out his way of life, Jesus leaves it with his hearers, with with us. Will they hear and obey his word? Or will they hear and reject his word? Will we hear and obey His Word? Or will we hear and reject His Word? Will will they embrace His way and follow Him? Or will they reject His way and, and walk after their own desires and their own wills? Many in our day have a hard time with, with anything that's kind of either or. In fact, I've read a lot of articles on preaching that say just don't put things because people don't like that nowadays. But as I look at what Jesus had to say... I don't see how you could take it any other way. I mean, it is either this or that in everything, right? Either we mourn for our sins or we excuse them. Either we mourn the sins of others or we excuse them because we like them or we look forward to the calamity it will bring to their life because we don't like them. Either we do our charitable deeds in secret Or we find a way to blow a trumpet so everybody sees and knows. Either we store up treasures on earth or we store up treasures in heaven. 
Either we get rid of things that lead us to sin, or we justify them and keep them. Either we turn the other cheek, or we get even. Either we forgive, or we hold a grudge. Either we love our enemies, or we only love those who love us. Either we practice self-denial, or we live in self-indulgence. Either we seek first the kingdom of God, or we seek something else first. Either we're doers of the word, or we're hearers only. I mean, there's just not a third option given to us in Scripture. Again, our culture doesn't like it as either black or white or either or, but there's not realistically any other way to take it. Either we believe in Jesus or we don't. Either we follow Jesus or we don't. Either we live the way of Jesus or we don't. Now clearly Jesus wants us all to choose His way, to follow Him. But in the end, that's our choice to make. And this morning, whatever choice is made, you and I, we're going to be the ones to make it. right? If I walk the way of Jesus, it'll be because I choose to. And if I don't walk the way of Jesus, it'll be because I choose not to. And it'll be the same with you. You're not going to accidentally fall into the way of Jesus. You're not going to stumble upon it. You're not going to do what kind of naturally feels good to you and go that way. You're going to have to do what's unnatural. You're going to have to do what's hard. You're going to have to do it in faith that it is the best way, even when it seems as though it's not. No one ever accidentally follows Jesus. It is a willful decision that we always make. And Jesus calls for a decision. I mean, the end of the sermon is, go my way and build your life on the rock. Or go your own way and wait for destruction to come. Choose. Choose the path that is set before you. So this morning, what will you do? Will you believe Jesus and embrace Jesus and follow Jesus? Or will you do something else? Because anything other than believe Jesus and choose Jesus and follow Jesus... It's something else. It's, it's not the way of Jesus. There is no third option. This morning I am urging you. Choose Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes a second. So we can have a time of prayer to respond to what God has been saying to us through His Word. Today we all have a choice to make, whether we're believers or not. If you're here and you've never chose to believe in Jesus, you're going to have to choose. Will I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins? Will I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Will I believe that if I call upon Him, He will save me and forgive me? Will I call upon Him? That's the choice that you have to make if you've never believed on Jesus. As a believer in Jesus, you're going to have to choose. Am I going to walk the unnatural and hard way of Jesus? Am I going to forgive and turn the other cheek and not store up treasures on earth and live in self-denial? Or am I not? The passage I read at the beginning of the service, Jesus said to, to 
count the cost. That's what we're going to do today in this time right here. We need to count the cost. We need to think about the decision that we're making and the long-term consequences of each one. And in this time, if you determine that the way of Jesus is best, then just say, cry out to Jesus and say, I I choose you, Jesus. I choose to believe you. I choose to serve you. I choose to walk in your way. And if you don't make that choice, at the very minimum, be honest with yourself that you're choosing not to follow Jesus. Be honest about the decision you're making in this moment. 